How we doing? 10 o'clock. We doing good? I, can I just say this? Uh, I mean, I can. I got the microphone. But I, I just want to uh, I just want to say, I was thinking about this because I walked in here uh, during that last song, and I was back there for launch class and seeing so many people take a step towards, you know, getting connected at the church. And, and it just, I was just kind of grinning ear to ear because um, when Andrew and I decided to, to go into ministry or to pastor and then uh, decided, had the opportunity to do that, we didn't really know a lot about what we wanted, you know, our church to be like or what exactly God had in store. We had a lot of ideas that we knew we didn't want it to be. You ever been like that? Like you had bad parents. You're like, I don't know what kind of parent I want to be, but I don't want to be that, right? Or whatever it is. And so we had some church experiences that were great people, but we thought, man, if we ever get a chance to pastor, if we ever get a chance to lead a church, we want to build the kind of church that we would want to attend if, you know, we weren't the pastors. But more specifically, it was a very simple thought we had. Like, we just want to create the kind of church to where you get in your car to leave and you're smiling. Like, that's a novel idea, right? It's like, if I could just go to church and then when I leave, I get to smile. And so many times as we're walking around here and just seeing all the things that God's doing in your life and so many things that God's doing at the church, we got a big smile on our face. So we don't want you to leave in a bad mood. And so I just, I love you. I love being here together and uh, having the chance to be at church together, and I hope, you feel, uh, I hope you feel the same way. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at the church, and uh, we are in the middle of a series. My phone just dinged. Uh-oh. We are in the middle of a series called uh, Divine Direction. It's all about God's will. That's the Bible way to say it, but it's all about God's plans. It's all about the decisions that we make in our life in order to be, this is how we've said it, in order to be in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. We want all of us, and we want to be in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. We don't want to work hard on the wrong thing. We don't want to do the right thing at the wrong time. We want to be in, this is the, the spiritual Bible way of saying it, we want to be in God's will. We want to be in God's will. You want to be in God's will. I want to be in God's will. We want to make sure, like, God, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And so that's what this series uh, is all about. And, uh, and so this is the third week of that. We spent two weeks talking uh, about taking the right steps. And today we're going we're gonna to switch that up a little bit. Uh, J.P. Morgan did uh, a study. The financial institution did a, did a study uh, over a 20-year period of the, the stock market, and here's what they came up with, that over a 20-year period, it wasn't the last 20 years, I think it was five years ago, but over a 20-year period, the stock market had grown 8.7% annually, all right? Now, I don't want to give you a headache, but, but the easiest way to comprehend that is that for 20 years, if your money was in the stock market, Every three years, it doubled. Or every nine years, excuse me, it doubled. Every nine years, it doubled. That's what 8.7% means, right? So 20 years, no matter how high, no matter how low, no matter whether it sent return on it, or it was at all-time high, over 20 years, 8.7% return on your money, which is really good. It's really, it's really incredible. But here, here's something interesting that they found out. If you, over those 20 years, missed... The 10 best or biggest or most profitable trading days, so maybe it was after a crash or a correction and you got scared and you pulled your money out, or maybe you were trying to time it right, or maybe you needed money to do something else, so you pulled it out, and you missed 10, the 10 biggest, most profitable trading days in the stock market. 
Instead of 8.7% return, you only got 4.5% return, which in essence is half. You lost half of your money if you missed out of 20 years, 10,000 days. If you missed the 10 biggest ones, you lost half your money, right? Half your profit, I should say. If you missed the 20 biggest days out of 10,000, if you just missed the 20 biggest days, you only got 2.7% return on your investment. That's a third of the profit that you could have got. But here's what's crazy, is if you missed the 30 biggest days out of 10,000, it was in there for you know 9,970 days, the money was in the market. But whether you got scared or you tried to time it right or whatever, and you were out of the market on the 30 biggest, most profitable days, you lost money. You lost money. Now, I don't, this is not stock market class, but this is a really powerful principle about God's will and about God's plan, uh, plan for our life. And, and we're just using the stock market as an example that there is something really powerful about staying in. We, we could just say staying. That regardless of how good or how bad in this research study that the market was, if you stayed in, you won. But if for whatever reason, just a little bit, you got out or you tried to time it right or you got scared, you started losing exponentially, exponentially. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. Not finances, not the stock market, but I want to talk about the power of staying, the power of staying. Because I think when you talk about God's will and you talk about God's plan for all of us in our heads, we always kind of imagine or picture starting something new, doing something new, a new relationship, a new job, moving in God's will, neighborhood, what, you know, starting a new business, whatever it is, we think, oh, I want God's will. I want to, you know, be successful. I want to do what God wants me to do. And in our minds, that usually means changing something, doing something new, going somewhere different, starting something up, and those things are true. That's what we've talked about over, over these last two weeks, taking those faith-filled risks, taking those steps of faith. But today, I want to talk about the power of staying, the power of remaining, and that maybe God's will for your life and maybe God's plan for your life is not to do anything new. It's not to chase anything new or do anything different. Maybe God's plan and God's will for your life is to stay right where you are, doing what you're already doing, right? Th this, is, this is an important principle or wrong idea for all of our lives that just because it doesn't feel like it's working doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. That just because you feel like it isn't working, whatever it is, think about your life right now and what you think isn't working. A diet, your faith, your marriage, your job, in school, maybe you're trying to finish college or high school, whatever right now in your life you would think, you know, Jason, like, I just don't know if it's working. Just because it feels like it's not working doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Knowing that we were going to be talking about, you know, staying and patience a little bit today, I had to show you this picture um, because this is, this is pretty incredible. You may not think this is a big deal, but it's a big deal to me because you just need to know this little fact about me is that I am 33 years old, almost 34 this week uh, is my birthday. And in 34 years of life, I've never caught a fish, <laughs> ever. I have never put a reel into the water 
and reeled back in a fish. I've never done it. I've never caught it. Now, some of you right now, you're fishermen. You're like, just go with me. I will catch fish. That's what like five people have told me. We've gone. They don't catch a thing. I don't know if there's a curse on my life. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm too loud. Maybe I smell. I don't know what it is. I'd never, I'm not making this up. I never caught a fish. And my son Solomon is hanging out with his Papa Joe this week, who's a man's man, you know, who kills bears with his bare hands. And, uh, and so Solomon is hanging out with him. And I want you to see this picture. My man caught his first fish. Look at that stud right there. I mean, he's, got, he's, he's bracing. You see it over there. And I don't know if Papa Joe was telling the truth or not, but supposedly he caught it himself. I don't know. So my, my two-year-old has caught his first fish. I have never caught a fish. I don't know much about fishing, but I know this, um, that, you know, like when it comes to fishing, there's, there's things that you do to be more successful. But what most people enjoy about fishing is how relaxing it is because you just, you know, you just kind of wait. You just are, you're, you're out there sitting on the bank or in a boat or whatever it is, and you're just, you're just kind of waiting for a bite. That's probably why I'm not a good fisherman, because <laughs> I'm not the most patient person uh, in, in the world. And uh, I did catch one fish one time at like a seafood restaurant where you just kind of like reach in there and grab one. I did that one time. Uh, so that's, that's, that is true. I've caught one. But, you know, we, we live in a culture and we live in a society that is constantly speeding up the expectations for results in our life. Like, there, there is no waiting time anymore. There's no process anymore. There, there, it, you got to produce right away or you feel like a failure. Can we just all admit that's pretty true? Like, you have a kid, and as a parent, you feel like if they are not walking by, like, six months, come on, Mom, my kid's behind. My kid is underdeveloped because it's like, no, no six, we're going through this right now with Zeke. It's like kid number four, like, come on, speed it up. Why aren't you talking yet? Why aren't you running yet, you know? And what does every parent who's gotten down the road a little bit tell you? They'll figure it out. Potty training. It's like if they're not potty trained by three months, it's like, what are we doing wrong? You know, and whatever the age is, and then your friends' kids are potty trained, whatever. You start a new job, and there's no six months getting comfortable behind the desk trying to figure out. It's like, no, you got to produce right away. You got to produce right away. You graduate from college. I have a career that I'm like figuring it out. I'm not sure what I want to do. It's like, I'm 25, and I don't have a career that I'm passionate about making lots of money. I'm a failure. You just feel as if that because you're not seeing instant results, somehow you're doing something wrong. But just because, just because you're not seeing the results or just because you don't feel like it's working doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. And what's crazy and what makes a relationship with Jesus so challenging is, is that in the kingdom of God, everything's about process. Everything is about like planting seed and harvest time. And I'm not a farmer, but like waiting it's about things coming to pass and being patient and, and, and praying and waiting. There's just all of this waiting. And everything else in society is telling us now, 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 now. And so we want to be in God's will. But if by chance we spend three months or three years or ten years doing something that doesn't bring us fame, you know, a glamorous lifestyle, 
rave reviews, fans, likes, whatever it is, we assume we must not be in God's will. Because if we were in God's will, everything would be awesome. We would make more money than we did last year. Our kids would be more uh, advanced, whatever it is. But that's not necessarily the case. I want to read a couple of verses of Scripture to you. The first one I want to read to you is out of Matthew chapter 1. And uh, I don't know if you've ever really read Matthew 1. You probably intended to read Matthew 1. You, you decided, I'm going to start reading the Bible, and I'm going to start with Matthew 1. And then you got started, and you realize it's just a family lineage. And you're like, okay, we'll skip that chapter. Let's go to chapter 2. Uh, I did that many times in my life. But there's something really cool about Matthew chapter 1 um, that just lists, like, so-and-so. Well, in King James, it was like, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, but we don't read Shakespeare Bible, so probably so. It, that now it just says that, you know, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. Was reading this back in the... Just leading us up to Jesus. And the reason it's in the Bible is to prove to people who are reading this back in the time that he really was uh, the son of God, but he was also a man. Like, we can prove where he came from. So when you open up to Matthew chapter 1, you start reading all these people. Some of them you recognize, some of you don't. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We probably recognize that. Jacob was the father of Judah. We probably recognize that. But as you get reading down the list... You start reading names you don't recognize or stories that you don't know. And I want to just highlight one today in, in Matthew chapter 1, verses uh, 5 and 6. This is what it says. It says, Boaz was the father of Obed. And then in parentheses, it gives us this little nugget, whose mother was Ruth, which we'll come back to that. And then it says, Obed was the father of Jesse. Which, that's pretty cool, but not as cool as this. That Jesse was the father of King David. So, so we're reading through this lineage, and we don't really know or recognize many of these names, but we find that this guy who's named Boaz was the father of a guy named Obed, who was the father of a guy named Jesse, who ended up being the father of King David. It's pretty cool. The great-grandparents. That's, that's that's a pretty cool lineage. And if you're just reading through this, you're just trying to cross it off a, a checklist or a Bible reading plan, you can miss the power of this story because even though it's just one line, Boaz was the father of, of, of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, that's cute. Like, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Like, that's great. But if, if you don't know the story, you miss out on this incredible power because in the Old Testament, there's a whole book dedicated to that verse in in verse 5 and verse 6. And I just want to tell you that story. You may be familiar with it. Maybe you're not, but you could read it in, in, in the Old Testament when you get some time. But there was a lady named Naomi, and Naomi was married, and her family moved. She had two sons. The two sons ended up and in finding wives. They got married. But then all of a sudden, something crazy happened in Naomi's life. Her sons, both of them died separately, and her husband died. So now, 10 years after moving from home, she is a widow, and she has two daughters-in-law, but she doesn't have sons. And, and so she's not sure what she's going to do. There's lots of historical facts about how she can't make a living and how now she can't provide sons for these daughters-in-law, and that means grandkids and so many things uh, connected to that. And so one day, Naomi decides, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back home. I'm going to go back home, and maybe somebody can help me there. 
and trying to be gracious and trying to be helpful and honoring, you know, to these daughters-in-law, she decides to let them off the hook. Like, hey, I know you married into my family, but I want you to know, like, I'm not expecting you to somehow stay with me. Even if I was to get married again, by the time you waited on new sons, you would be older. You wouldn't be able to have children. Like, why don't, I'm going to go home. Why don't you just go home? We'll call it even. Everything will be, everything will be fine. It makes logical sense. It's in Ruth chapter 1. It starts with verse 7, and it goes for a few verses. We'll read some of it. And so it says that with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road. This is Naomi we're talking about. It would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me, and may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. That makes sense. And she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. It's like, just go home. Go find another man. Don't go with me. There's nothing here for you. There's no upside in this. I'm going to go live in somebody's basement. There is no upside for you to stay with me. No, they said, verse 10, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, daughters, should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, if I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Do you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. My daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Life can feel that way sometimes. Verse 14, and again, they wept together. And this is not the point of the message, but I think it's so interesting that you can be in seasons of weeping and be right in the middle of God's will. You know, like it can feel like if you're crying, that's, you're somewhere in the wrong or you're being punished. And like here are these weeping, mourning, confused, not sure what to do with their life, and they are right where God wants them to be. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Like, get, get off of me. Go home. Get, go home. I have nothing to offer you. It doesn't make any rational, logical sense for you to stay with me. There's nothing for you here. No one in their right mind would choose to stay with me. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Don't bring it up again, she said. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Naomi says, Ruth, leave. Leave. And, 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 and Ruth says to Naomi, I don't want you to bring it up again. Don't ask me again. I'm not going anywhere. So they return home, and, and Naomi sends Ruth out to, to pick grain out of fields, kind of leftover. Uh, they had this custom set up, so if you were poor and you didn't have anything, after the farmers had collected food, if you could find anything out there, then you could keep it. And so Ruth would go out every day, and she would gather up leftovers. And one day, the Bible says it just so happened. That the only, I love those coincidental, providential, just so happened moments from God. That the owner of the field, whose name was Boaz, saw this young lady named Ruth working hard out in the field to collect leftovers. And so he says to his helpers and his staff members at the farm, he says, who is that? And they say, her name is Ruth. She is Naomi's daughter. And she has been working from sunup to sundown 
She, she's been working. We talked about work ethic last week. She's been working, they said. And Boaz goes to meet her and you know, depending on how you read it, whether you're romantic or not, it sparks kind of fly pretty quickly. Long story short, they end up hitting it off. Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. They move in. They bring mom-in-law in. She ends up having a child. You could probably guess by now because we read it that the child's name is Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And the reason I tell you that story is because here is an example of someone who had every logical, reasonable reason to leave, to go do something new. Anybody who was talking to Ruth would say, Ruth, You need to really make something out of your life. You need to leave. This is a dead end. Don't stay here. There's nothing here for you. It makes all the sense in the world for you to leave. But we don't know why. But there was something in Ruth that says, I'm not leaving. And because she chose to stay, God did something incredible in her life and carried on the lineage and the the family tree of Jesus through her. Poor Orpah. You know what I mean? Like she, she left. And just like Ruth, and and just like Naomi, and just like Boaz, your life will tell a story. It'll probably be summed up, you know, Miss Kid, they'll sum it up, you know, Jason and Andrew been married 50 years, or if you have a famous kid, they'll say, oh, Jason and Andrew was the, you know, were the parents of Solomon, or what, like, they'll sum it up, and they created this, or they pastored this, or whatever it is, your story will be summed up. Let me ask you this question, what do you want your story to be? What kind of story do you want to tell, to tell with your life? Because here's what's going to happen throughout your life, is you are going to have opportunities to start something new, to start over, to go in a new direction, to start a new thing. You're always constantly going to have these opportunities, and they're always going to seem to show up at the perfect time because you're going to be dissatisfied with what you currently have. You know, new opportunities are never appealing when you love what you currently have. Isn't that true? But when you're dissatisfied, discontent, things aren't going the way you want them to go, opportunities present themselves, and you have to make the decision, am I going to stay or am I going to go, and what is God's will for my life, and what should I do, and should I stay or should I go? And if we're not careful, all of us, because we live in this culture and this society of instant results and you got to produce now, we will keep bouncing around and bouncing around and bouncing around and disconnecting and uprooting and choosing to do new things, hoping that the next idea will be the thing, the next move, the next relationship, the next job, the next investment, the next team, the next school. We'll just keep hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping. You know what? It hasn't worked up to now, but this is going to be it. But what if it's not it? What if the reason that we're not seeing the results we want to see is because we keep starting over and we haven't put in the time that we need to put in? You know, I, I, I just started thinking through my life, but a lot of the stories, your stories, stories that I know about reasons that we, that we leave something. Reasons that we quit something. I think one reason that, that we leave and is because is we get offended. Have you ever been in that situation? 
you're doing something and someone offends you and you get, because you have offense, you decide, well, they don't respect me or they don't appreciate me or I, I, I can't keep working here. I'm offended. I can't stay in this relationship. I can't believe they would do that to me. I can't believe they wouldn't give me that promotion. I can't believe they only offered me that much of a raise. I can't believe they don't see what value I am to the company, and I'm offended. Maybe it's your son or daughter playing on a sports team. And you can't believe that they're playing those other kids over your kids, because come on, your kids got your athleticism, and they're amazing. And I can't believe that they wouldn't play my kid. And so we're going to go find a team where they'll play my kid. We're going to go find a coach who appreciates how good my kid is. I was in the hospital and the pastor didn't, he didn't come visit me and he must not care about me and I'm offended. So I'm going to go find a church somewhere where the pastor really appreciates me. Somebody said this about me or didn't say this about me or I'm offended. I'm offended. And for some of us in the room, we have bounced around from spot to spot to spot to spot to spot. And when we tell the story, it is always somebody else's fault. Always. It was my boss. It was my ex-spouse. It was my teacher. It was my coach. And we have this stink about us and this offense. And we're so defensive and we live at this level and we just can't believe how awful everybody else is, and so we leave because we get offended. And we keep assuming that the next place will be the place where no one offends us. You're going to get offended or have the opportunity to get offended at every place you're at and every relationship you're in. You're going to get the chance. So one reason we leave is because we're offended. Another reason I think some of us like leave or go do something new is because we get bored. We just get bored. Like, we, we, it's not exciting anymore. You know, the first stage of anything that science tells us that our brains release these endorphins just like we're doing a drug or just like we're gambling or any, uh, when we get a notification on our phone from a text message, that when we do something new that the endorphins kick in and, and it's an infatuation stage at the beginning of every stage. So you go start the new job. You leave the job you've been at seven years. You go start the new job and then you get on Facebook and you say, I can't believe that this job was out there. This is the greatest job I've ever been a part of. It's been two weeks. F so glad to finally have a boss who, who, who is not a jerk and appreciates me. It's been four days. But because we have in this infatuation, you know, happening in our brain, we get the thrill and the rush of being excited about starting something new. Starting a new diet. Starting a new job. Starting a new relationship starting in a new school. Like, like, there's this excitement. And so we get bored three months, three years into something new. And we're like, you know what? I just need something to kickstart, something to excite me. And we can't figure out why we can't keep the excitement over an extended period of time. And we're so sure that there is something out there that will occupy us forever. We are so sure that there will be something out there that we don't get sick of. But there isn't. There isn't. Maybe it's not because we get offended or bored. Maybe it's because we get scared. We get scared and we're afraid to, to stay with the business that we started. Or we're afraid to take that financial 
faith step. Or, and we're just, we're just scared. Maybe we have relational baggage or codependency or we've been in awful relationships and so we finally find a good one and we have to figure out a way to screw it up because we're, we're scared. Now, let me just give you one more reason I think we leave. And I think this reason that we leave, and I, I just want to spend just a few moments on this one. I think this last reason that we leave is because we believe a lie. Because we believe a lie. And so we quit on something that's good because we believe this lie that something else will be better. That the grass will be greener over there. That that office, that that marriage, that that school. We start believing this lie that says, you'll never truly be happy here. We start believing this lie that says, you're going to miss out if you don't take this opportunity. And we've all heard, you know, the grass is greener on the other side because that's where they water it. Or maybe you've heard the grass is greener on the other side because that's where all the manure is. Like, I don't know, you know, what analogy you've heard, but there's just this feeling in our, in our life like that, that we're missing out on something. And the devil starts saying, like, you really need to eat that apple, Eve. He starts saying that to us. He starts saying that to us, and so we walk away from a marriage that, yeah, has its challenges. Yeah, it has its challenges. But we walk away from it because we have convinced ourselves that we'll never truly be happy unless we go find someone else. Or we walk away from a career, or we walk away from some friendships, or we quit and drop out of school, or whatever it is. Because we've convinced ourselves that if we stay, we'll be stuck and we'll be bored and everybody else is having a good time and everybody's getting opportunities, but we're not. We're not. And so we leave. And so as you think today about your life and you think back about your story, I want to ask you and challenge you with this. Which of these lies have you believed and how much have you been bouncing around? hoping that the next thing will be the thing that will fix everything. Jesus said it like this, and I'll end by just explaining it like this. Jesus said in, in John chapter 15, Jesus said, uh, verses 4 and 5, he said, If you remain in me, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit, if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. I got me a branch here. Because I think this illustrates what Jesus was trying to say so perfectly. Now listen, the true context of this verse in John 15 is Jesus is saying, remain in me, in relationship with me, your faith in me. And so that is the literal context of what this verse means. But I think the principle here is so true for everything else in our lives. That Jesus makes a statement and he says, a branch cannot produce fruit on its own if it's severed from the vine. That's what Jesus said. And we know that's true. Like we're not, you know, maybe you don't know a ton about nature or whatever. You're in my category here. But we both know that no matter how long we hold this up for the next 20 years, how many people know it ain't growing nothing? Isn't that true? Anybody disagree with that statement? Nope, it's not. It's done growing fruit. Why? Because it's severed from the tree or the vine. And so Jesus says a branch 
that has been severed, it cannot produce. But here's what we do. We get offended, we get bored, we get scared, we believe a lie, we keep bouncing around. And so we take our branch, our life, and we think that the problem is the soil, right? The problem is my boss. The problem is my office. The problem is my bank. The problem is my neighborhood. The problem is my spouse. The problem is my kids. The problem is my school. The problem is my coach. The problem, Jason, is the soil. I'm fine. I'm good. The problem's the soil. So we uproot and we go over here and we plant it in this soil. And then we're like, this is so good. Soil really a pre- soil like this. This is like the best soil I've ever been in. This soil really appreciates me. And then three months later, we're like, Jason, I need to set up a meeting with you, man. I don't know what's going wrong. I'm not producing anything. I'm not happy. Nothing seems to be working. I I just can't figure it out. And then we're like, oh, you know what, though? This this relationship over here, this husband, this wife, this girlfriend, this boyfriend, this is going to fix it. I've never been so in love in all of my life. This is it. This is the soil. I'm finally going to resolve all my issues. I'm finally going to be happy. I'm finally going to get my life together. Five months later, you're like, Jason, I need to set up a meeting with you, man. I don't know what it is, but like, I, she, I just, she, I, he just, I, it's just not working. And I could keep going and going and going and going and going because we think the problem's the soil and we keep bouncing around and we keep planting. And we're like, Jason, I just can't figure out God's will for my life, Jason. I can't figure out where God wants me to be. Nothing's working. And we're on our sixth job, third marriage, fifth church. Why isn't anything growing? Because it's severed from the vine. There comes a point in our lives, the old King James version of the Bible calls it abiding. There comes a point in our lives where we have to choose to remain even though we want to go. My friend Pastor Micah says it like this, that even when you know you choose not to go, he means like when you find out a, a justifiable reason to leave, you choose to stay. There comes a point And there are plans, let me say it this way, there are plans that God has for your life that will not bear fruit or you see the fruit of your labor or the results of it for years down the road. But if you keep uprooting, you cannot produce fruit. I say this all the time around here, and I don't mean this, please hear me, as any offense to anyone in the room who's been of your life. Be married because I... My prayer for you is that this would be the most fruitful, incredible relationship of your life. But I think even you would agree with this statement. Go find somebody who's celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And go find somebody who's celebrating their third wedding reception. And see who has more joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction. But in order to get to 50, you've got to choose to stay. Go find somebody who was at Southeast Christian Church when they were running 147 people in in an office complex somewhere. And they're still there. And say, man, tell me about this church, 20, 25, 30,000 people. And they will be able to tell you all of the stories because they had a front row seat to all the miracles that God did throughout that church. But if you decide to stay at a church for 30 years, guess what that means? You have to choose to stay when you can come up with reasons to go. 
my friend Chris started on the loading dock at Lowe's unloading trucks. Now he's the regional manager for the whole area. He's been there his whole life. It's all he's ever done. Do you know how you climb from the very bottom of a business over the next 25 to 30 years to be at the very top of the business? You choose to stay when you can come up with incredible reasons to go and totally justifiable reasons that all your friends and relatives go, I mean, I wouldn't stay. Sometimes you have to look at it and say, you know what? I am not going to keep uprooting and trying to find new soil. I'm going to stay planted. I'm going to remain. I'm going to stay planted. I'm going to remain. And I know that I got justifiable reasons. Listen, some of you in here, you're in a marriage right now and you're trying to decide whether or not to stay because somebody has committed adultery. And biblically, you got grounds to go. But you know what? Adultery is also grounds for forgiveness. And I'm not telling you you have to. A sermon that is so broken that you've got to give up on it. And it is much more complicated than a sermon that I'm giving you in 30 seconds. But what a story to tell. 15, 20, 30 years later. About what God did. So listen, look, I know it's not sexy. It's not near as exciting as saying that God's going to give you a new business idea tomorrow. But so many of us in the room are are, are frustrated because we're just not seeing the results in our lives that we want to see. But it's because we keep uprooting. Some of you in here, your family is not where you want them to be spiritually. And I'm not trying to, listen, you know me, trust my heart. This is not about me or Hope City Church. But like you've taken your kids to five different churches in 10 years. What do you expect? That you're going to find one where there's no mean people or no mistakes? Come on. Choose to stay. Are there times in our lives where we have to go? Absolutely. Are there times to close chapters? Absolutely. The Bible's filled with those, and we've been talking about those, but I don't think that's our challenge culturally. I think our challenge is I could go. Everybody's telling me I probably should go, but I'm going to stay planted. I'm going to stay connected to the vine because I want my life to bear fruit. Let's pray.